Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. As Hurricane Ian barrels into South Carolina, the president tells Americans it's a crisis not just for the areas impacted, but also for the whole country. A Democrat lawmaker accuses her party of leadership failure after it delays a vote on banning stock trading. Doctors and lawyers joining together in California to call on the governor to veto a medical misinformation bill. It comes on the last day the state can sign or veto this year's legislation. Marijuana use in America spreads more and more. Experts tell us where they think the push for legalization is coming from. Ian made landfall again as a hurricane in South Carolina this afternoon, while Florida continues to recover from the destruction caused by the storm. While it moves inland, Ian has been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone. Hurricane Ian hit the South Carolina coast near Georgetown around 2 p.m. Friday afternoon. It was carrying winds of up to 85 miles per hour. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster gave an update on the storm, saying there have been no deaths so far. Behind the Grand Strand, the water is backing up because it can't get out, but behind the beaches and behind the creeks. Uh, but this is not as bad as, as it could have been. Uh, a lot of prayers have been answered, but I would ask people don't quit yet because it's, it's still coming. The area hardest hit is between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who is in Charleston, explains what conditions were like on the ground. She says power went on and off during the day. When it rains, it pours and it floods here. Fortunately, right now, it's only at seven and a half feet for high tide. We're expecting nine feet, so it will be slightly better than before. But we will have flooding throughout Charleston. Uh, right now, the winds, some of the some of the roads and bridges are shutting down because of higher sustained winds. There are places that are seeing gusts of over 65 miles per hour. Meanwhile, in Florida, search and rescue teams are scrambling to reach those trapped by the storm. They've rescued at least 700 so far. Authorities say at least 21 people have been killed and about 1.8 million were still without power Friday afternoon. And President Biden spoke on Hurricane Ian today. What did he say about the storm and the federal response? NTD's Iris Tao has those details. Oh man, it's washing it away. Look at that. As Ian has more parts of the East Coast after causing catastrophic damage in Florida, President Biden says this about its aftermath. We're just beginning to see the scale of that destruction. It's likely to rank among the worst of the nations and the worst in the nation's history. It's going to take months, years to rebuild. Addressing the nation from the White House on Friday, the president says Americans' hearts are with devastated Floridians. It's not just a crisis for Florida. This is an American crisis. Biden says he's giving more federal funding to Florida, adding that the largest search and rescue team in recent history has been deployed. Because so many of the rescuers need to take place now, need to be there in place now, in the water now. And in addition to dealing with the storm's aftermath, the administration also vows to prepare for damage elsewhere. Biden on Thursday night issued an emergency declaration for South Carolina ahead of expected landfalls. They'll give the state immediate federal funding for sheltering people and providing other support. My message to the people of South Carolina is simple. 
A government shutdown is averted after Congress passed a temporary funding bill to keep federal agencies open through December 16th. But House Republicans today put up a fight against the temporary funding bill. We should not fund a government that is allowing an invasion across our southern border. Included in the necessary funding bill is $12 billion for Ukraine and $19 billion for FEMA for disaster relief. Another $1 billion is to help low-income Americans pay for rising heating and cooling costs. Most all House Republicans voted no on it. Many wanted to extend the expiration date until January to allow Republicans to have more control over the 2023 budget if the GOP takes back power in Congress. Ten bucked party leadership and voted with Democrats to pass the funding bill. And some lawmakers have left town until November without making good on a promise to vote on a bill to ban stock trading. Leaders of the Democrat-controlled Congress previously said that a vote would happen before they left today. Now, one lawmaker is calling this a failure of her own party's leadership. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more details. House leadership said they'd vote on a bill this week to ban lawmakers from trading stock, but leadership has punted that vote just ahead of them leaving um, D.C. for over a month, and they haven't given a specific date as to when they'll take up this bill in the future. Now, the fact that leadership has delayed a vote on this has drawn backlash from a Democrat member in Congress, Representative Spanberger. She's now calling for new leadership. Spanberger said in a statement this morning, this moment marks a failure of House leadership. And it's yet another example of why I believe that the Democratic Party needs new leaders in the halls of Capitol Hill, as I have long made known. So how is leadership responding to this criticism? Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier today. Well, we have to have the votes to bring it up. You don't think you have the votes? Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll work to have the votes. We don't go from one day to the next. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer says he delayed the vote on this because the text was just released on Tuesday and members did not have enough time to review it. But Representative Spamberger is not convinced, saying that this, this bill was designed to fail, saying that this is a kitchen sink bill and it's not a genuine effort on the part of House leadership to prevent financial conflicts of interest among lawmakers. Um, she says that pretty much they are trying to create the illusion here that House leadership is pursuing um, this path while not taking any concrete action on it. And House Speaker Pelosi today did not say when leadership would bring this issue up again or if they even would at all once lawmakers do come back in November. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in today in a traditional ceremony. President Biden, Vice President Harris and their spouses attended. The swearing-in today was for a lifetime appointment. It came three months after Chief Justice John Roberts conducted Jackson's first official swearing-in. She repeated the oath she took in June when she replaced retired Justice Stephen Breyer. Like all new justices since 1972, Jackson sat in the chair that once belonged to Chief Justice John Marshall. She will hear her first oral arguments as a justice when the court's new term begins Monday. The FDA is not releasing autopsy results of people who died after getting COVID-19 vaccines. 
The administration says it can't release the data. The Epoch Times submitted a Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, request to the FDA for all autopsy reports submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System after COVID-19 vaccination. Reports are lodged with the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System when a person experiences an adverse event or a health issue after receiving a vaccine. The FDA and other agencies are tasked with investigating the reports. The FDA declined to release autopsy reports based on federal regulations, which bar the release of personnel, medical, and similar files, the disclosure of which constitutes a clearly unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. But a drug safety advocate who's on an FDA advisory committee told the Epoch Times that the reports could be released with personal information blacked out, saying, the personal information could easily be redacted without losing the potential learnings from the autopsy. She added that people make the choice to submit autopsy results to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, and that if someone submits their experience to VAERS, they want and expect to have it investigated by the FDA. The FDA responded, saying that deaths following COVID-19 vaccination are rare. They say around 16,000 reports of death following COVID-19 vaccination have been reported, while over 600 million doses have been administered. The FDA didn't say whether they would ever release the autopsy results. The Epic Times has appealed the denial of the FOIA request. A medical misinformation bill is just hours away from becoming law in California. That's if the governor doesn't veto it by midnight. NTD's Daniel Hall spoke with opponents before they rallied at the last moment to call on the governor to veto the bill. Doctors and lawyers alike gathered on the steps of the California Capitol building on Friday to call on the governor to veto a bill that would censor what it calls medical misinformation. Lee Dundas, one of the lawyers at the event, spoke to NTD as she made her trip to Sacramento. Well, the bill is essentially about criminalizing free speech by medical professionals in the state of California. Right now, what this bill says is that all doctors have to go along with whatever the prevailing narrative is. Dundas is talking about Assembly Bill 2098. It's pretty clear it's being pushed by the pharmaceutical uh, lobbyists and industry because when you look at the bill's authors, it is Senator Richard Pan, who has traditionally been the bag holder for pharma in our state, um, along with Senator uh, Scott Weiner and Assemblyman Lowe. Nicole Pearson, another lawyer at the event, talked to NTD after she arrived at the Sacramento airport about the consequences of Governor Gavin Newsom not vetoing the bill. If he doesn't veto it, he's telling Americans that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, your careers, again, your education and training don't matter and don't have protections, not only in the state of California, but across the United States if he runs for president. Dundas stressed another consequence. I think you're going to see a huge brain drain, a mass exodus of the most talented doctors in the, in the nation doing cutting-edge medical innovative work who are going to say, to heck with that, I'm not risking my license by discovering something new and not being able to talk about it in California. Pearson said the law would also have ongoing consequences for not just Californians, but also potentially Americans. This, this is what we call in the law a slippery slope. And it starts with the medical professionals, and right now it's physicians and surgeons. Then it will be applied to the nurses who don't want to assist because they disagree. And it's going to trickle down until it's you. It's you, and then like I said, not just you, the everyday average California citizen, but every American citizen if Governor Newsom becomes president. The two cited how much the COVID narrative has changed. 
And then two weeks ago, you have the premier medical journal on the planet, the New England Journal of Medicine, coming out and saying, just kidding, after we've done some studies, we have found not only are they ineffective in childhood populations, and all they have is negative efficacy, meaning your child is more likely to contract the disease if they've had the shot than if they've not. And just to be clear, it's not just, you know, fringe doctors. We have Paul Offit, who was on the FDA advisory board, the CDC advisory board. He is changing his tune. We have Dr. Malhorta, who's out of Europe. He's changing his tune. He was one of the and added that legal teams are prepared if the bill becomes law. The lawsuits are written. Um, they are ready to go if this bill becomes law. And like I said, it's patently illegal and unconstitutional on its face. It is going to be struck down, even if we have to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, but it will be struck down. If Newsom does not veto the bill, it will automatically be signed into law at midnight on September 30th. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And also in California, Governor Newsom signed a bill into law on Thursday, making California a transgender sanctuary state. This means California is now a refuge for transgender children and their parents who are leaving other states due to restrictions on gender transition services. The governor said, quote, We believe that no one should be prosecuted or persecuted for getting the care they need, including gender-affirming care. California will ensure these kids and their families can seek and obtain medical and mental health care they need. The bill was widely protested by the California Family Council and other groups opposed to minors receiving puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and gender transition surgeries. They previously called on the governor to veto the bill. And marijuana. More people are reportedly using it these days, and it's often marketed as medicine. Our reporters sought out experts to learn more about this growing industry. Marijuana is legal in almost 20 states, and five more have it on the ballot this November. Acceptability seems to be on the rise, according to a recent Gallup poll. For the first time ever in the U.S., there are more people using marijuana than smoking cigarettes. Ben Court is a businessman from Colorado and the author of Weed, Inc., he calls the current push for marijuana an orchestrated smokescreen. The money behind this was always huge multinational corporate interests. The money was the same money that supported tobacco and um, big pharma in its early days of, of the Oxycontin disaster. Court says the people who pushed for the legalization of cannabis have always described it as an undeveloped global commodity. The idea here is absolutely not social justice, is not um, any sort of reform in, in a meaningful way. Um, the intent here is to get richer. He also says one in every four lobbyists in Colorado work for a cannabis company. That can influence the way the public views the drug. There has never been a lower perception of risk in this country for um, marijuana. And conversely, um, there's never been an, a higher actual risk. Dr. Kenneth Finn is a specialist in physical medicine, rehabilitation, and pain medicine. A decade ago, he served on the Colorado Governor's Task Force on Amendment 64, which legalized recreational marijuana. He points out the dangers of the drug. Well, I think a lot of my colleagues that work in psychiatry and emergency medicine are seeing a, a, a sharp rise in marijuana-related psychoses. Some people say they use medical marijuana as a painkiller. Finn says he tried applying for a medical marijuana license in Colorado just to see how easy it was to be approved for the drug. I was approved in 60 seconds. Uh, 
Um, there was no physical exam. There was no medical record review. There was no MRI review. I wasn't even asked my level of pain. You can watch the full interviews in this week's episode of The Nation Speaks, airing on Saturday. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed treaties today to annex four Ukrainian regions. How Ukraine and the U.S. are responding. And a family of three generations that keeps gold mining traditions alive in the Golden State. The family now teaches people how to pan for gold and, if they're lucky, strike it rich. We'll have their story after this short break. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed treaties today to annex four Ukrainian regions partly occupied by Moscow's forces. The hurried annexations mean that the front lines of the war will now run through territory that Russia is declaring as its own. Putin says Russia will use all its forces and means to protect its land. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Russian President Vladimir Putin presided over a ceremony on Friday to incorporate four Ukrainian regions into Russia. The ceremony took place three days after the completion of hastily organized so-called referendums in Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson. Moscow's proxies in the occupied regions claimed majorities of up to 99% voted in favor of joining Russia. There will be federal and constitutional support for the four new regions to become part of the Russian Federation, and that is because it's the will of millions of people. Kiev has vowed to recapture all the lands seized by Russia. Ukraine said Moscow's decision to annex the provinces has destroyed any prospect for peace talks. The annexations mean that Russia now lays claim to over one-fifth of Ukraine's territory, including parts that it does not control. It had already seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Putin at the ceremony urged Ukraine to cease military action and return to the negotiating table. That's the only path to peace. We will defend our land using all forces and means at our disposal and we'll do everything we can to protect the security of our people. That's the great liberating mission of our people. Putin denied seeking to revive the Soviet Union. He said the West was engaged in a hybrid war against Russia. Putin also claimed that Russia's development and growth were a threat to what he called the collective West. They don't want freedom for us. They want to see us as a colony. They don't want equal cooperation, but robbery. They want to see us not as a free society, but as a crowd of soulless slaves for them. The Russian president and Russian-appointed leaders of the four territories signed formal documents at the end of the ceremony. The European Union condemned the annexation by Russia of occupied Ukrainian regions. Brussels said it would never recognise illegal referendums held there. EU leaders are expected to tighten sanctions on Moscow. The United States imposed new sanctions on hundreds of Russian individuals and companies including members of Russia's legislature, military and central bank in response to the annexation. 
And President Biden responded to Putin's move this morning. Biden says the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory and will not be intimidated by Putin's threats. He also called the leaks in the Nord Stream pipelines a deliberate act of sabotage and accused Russia of spreading disinformation and lies, but he didn't directly blame Moscow. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky today announced that Ukraine is officially applying for NATO membership. But the military alliance is unlikely to accept the bid while the war continues. If Ukraine joins NATO, fellow members would have to actively defend it against Russia. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Soccer great Abby Wambach told ESPN that she plans to divest herself from a Brett Favre-backed drug company that's at the center of a Mississippi welfare fraud case. Wambach, a two-time gold medal winner, was a member of a sports advisory board for Odyssey Health, which is a drug company that's developing a nasal spray used to treat concussions. The company was formerly known as Prevacus. Favre was Prevacus's top investor. According to a lawsuit filed by the state of Mississippi, $2.1 million that was supposed to go to welfare recipients went to Prevacus instead. This was allegedly after Favre hosted a meeting between the company's founder and the state of Mississippi's human services director. The suit alleges that the $2.1 million was supposed to be for setting up clinical trials in the state, but instead was used to purchase stock in the company. The money was taken from Mississippi's Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, an anti-poverty program. And in sports tonight, 14 baseball games are on the schedule, including a Yankees-Orioles matchup with Aaron Judge looking for historic home run number 62. Meanwhile, their crosstown rival Mets, who currently have a one-game lead in the NL East, open up a pivotal three-game series against the second-place Atlanta Braves. And in college football action tonight, 15th-ranked UCLA battles Washington. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And gold mining, it's what gave California its name. And while mining is far from what it used to be, gold fever isn't completely gone. In one gold rush town, a family of three generations is still teaching people how to pan for gold. And they taught NTD's Eileen Ang as well. Along Highway 49 in Jamestown, visitors pan for gold on Woods Creek. Three generations of the Prebolic family have been running California gold panning since the late 1970s. The grandfather, Terry, learned the tricks of the trade from old-timer miners. He passed on his knowledge to his son, Nick, who passed it on to his son, Nate. Well, it's great. I get to see my son and my father all the time. Everybody doesn't get to do that, you know, and this is the only exercise that dad gets. He'd be sitting on the couch otherwise watching TV. And I'm lucky in the way that I, this is my office, you know. It's, um, it's more meditative than anything for me. So. Now they teach people how to pan for gold. So what we do for our guests is to bring them down and give them a full experience as an 1800s miner, basically. We use a little bit more modern tools, of course, but what we do is get them right in the water, get dirty. Nate demonstrates where and how to dig and how to filter out material. Then we have a device called a sluice box we set right in the creek and it filters it even further. 
So we can run anywhere from one five-gallon bucket of material to 105 gallon buckets of material. And it's going to sift it all down to just one gold pan's worth. Nate gave a manual panning demonstration. Okay, We're going to finish rinsing off the sides. There we go. One more for luck. Let's see what we get. There we go. Beautiful. As he pours out excess water, he beautiful, explains that beautiful. gold is heavy and stays at the bottom. Okay. So he isn't worried about accidentally letting any slip away. Lastly, water. we use the pan to sift the remaining material. Right water and gravity holds the heavy stuff back until only gold is left. We're looking for bright yellow sunshine. There's that piece up there. That piece. Is that? Eureka, we're rich. <laughs> Right As for storing, Nate scoops some water from the water. river into a tiny exactly jar. We used our fingers okay, to pick up the tiny pieces and put them in the jar for display. What we find out here is 22 to 23 karat pure gold. Now you can get 24 karat gold only by chemically processing it. So out here it's as natural, as, as pure as it can naturally be. Visitors can book tours to pan in groups for anywhere from an hour to three days. They hope to keep the family business going for years to come. Eileen Ang, NTD News, Jamestown, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.